Good morning. Uh, this morning we are continuing our series in the life of Paul, but before I jump into Paul's life, I want to teach you something right at the top of the sermon that is something I think we see illustrated in the Old Testament. I think we actually see it illustrated in the Old Testament multiple times. It's related to what we're going to talk about in our sermon, so I wanted to start off by teaching you that, and this is how it goes. Sometimes God does things in a spectacular way, and sometimes God is more subtle. Did you know that? So the way that I want to show you that, when I say it's illustrated in the Old Testament, I want to compare the book of Exodus to the book of Esther. Um, the book of Exodus and the book of Esther are two books in the Old Testament, and in some ways they have a lot of similarities. They are both books about um, God intervening in the life of his people, okay, the Jewish people, and him um, protecting and rescuing them. Okay, protecting and rescuing them from oppressors. In the case of the book of Exodus, the bad guys are the Egyptians. That's who God is rescuing them from. In the case of Esther, the bad guys are the Persians. That's the person that God is protecting them and rescuing them from. Um, both of these stories um, ultimately brought about like holidays that Jewish people still celebrate to this day as they look back and praise God for rescuing them. So the holiday that's most associated with Exodus is, anybody know? Okay, Passover, yep. So Passover is the one where they celebrate how God rescued them in the book of Exodus. And then the way that God rescued them in the book of Esther is celebrated through, anybody know? Purim. Okay, very good. Even better than first service. This is, this is like the A class right here. So to this day, Jewish people praise God for rescuing them, and they do it with Passover, and they do it with Purim. They celebrate how God rescued them in Exodus. They celebrate how God rescued them in the book of Esther. Um, and so these stories are very similar, except here's a big difference. In the book of um, Exodus, God rescues his people in a spectacular, miraculous, supernatural, bending the laws of science kind of way. With the 10 plagues that come progressively getting worse to the point that the Egyptians finally kick the Israelites out instead of enslaving them. And then when the Egyptians change their mind and want to attack the Israelites once more, God literally parts the sea and they walk through on dry ground and then he causes the sea to collapse in on their enemies. So huge, spectacular, miraculous things happening in the book of Exodus. And then you go to the book of Esther, where God also rescues his people. No miracles. Nothing supernatural happens, right? When you think about how God rescues his people in Esther, the right woman becomes queen at the right time. A particular guy in the story overhears some people talking about killing the king. He overhears this murder plot, and then that information helps him to be able to do the next thing he needs to do. Um, there's a messenger toward the end of that story who shows up in the king's presence and gives a message at like the absolute perfect time, considering what the king had just heard just before that, so that he would do the next thing that he's supposed to do. And so you look at Exodus and you look at Esther and you say, wow, one of them, God did spectacular, miraculous things. And then the other one in Esther, God shows up and he, the way that he protects the people is through just perfect circumstances, perfect timing and no miracles. And the reason why I wanted to start off by saying that to you is because I would imagine there are probably some of you in this room that at least at times think that God has abandoned you. When it may be that he's just being more subtle than before. There may be some of you in this room who there's a, there's a time in your life that you look back to and you go, oh, goodness, I remember. That was like when God showed up. I can remember going like, God, that was you. Thank you so much. And then some months went by or some years went by and now you're going, God, are you there? Are you still there? I'm pretty sure you were there, but now it feels like you're not there at all. Do you even, do you even care anymore? And I just want to remind you, sometimes God shows up in very obvious ways and sometimes much more subtle. And so he may be working in your life in very 
ordinary ways right now. And so I wanted to start off the sermon with that, just to tell you, don't lose heart. If you are a follower of Jesus, he has not left you. Amen? Now, one reason I bring that up is because I just think there's probably someone here who needed to hear that. Um, But also, it's related to this morning's Bible passage in the life of Paul. So we see it illustrated there, and then I think you're going to see some of this in Paul's life. So Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 30, is where we are. Our text for this morning is Acts 20, 30, all the way to Acts 20, sorry, Acts 22, 30, to Acts 23, 35. So that's our text. As I read it to you, um, let me first just give you a little bit of context so you know what's going on here. Um, If you were here last week, hopefully this this will sound familiar to you. So Paul has arrived in Jerusalem. Things went really bad right away. Um, There is a commander in this story. He's one of the main characters in this part of the story. And he is, at this point, he's kind of like the chief of police of Jerusalem while Paul's there. And he is protecting Paul from a crowd of people who want to beat him to death. Do you remember that from last week? Okay, so a crowd of people, they want to beat him to death. And this uh, Roman commander is protecting him, but he doesn't understand why. He doesn't understand what's going on. He has not been able to figure it out. I don't know many, how many hours we are into the story, but he does not know what's going on. The first time he tried to figure out what's going on, he went and talked to this crowd of people who were like riotous and screaming. And though, even though he was speaking the same language as the people, he could not figure out what was going on from the people. Like he's talking their language, they're talking his, but these people are screaming one thing and these people are screaming another thing. And he's like, I don't know what's going on. So then there comes a point in the story, you may remember this last week, where there was a hush that came over the crowd and there was like normal talking. But then they were speaking in the Hebrew language. And as best as we can tell, this commander did not speak that language. So he's got people speaking his language screaming. He doesn't understand that. Then there are people talking a whole different language. They're calm, but I still don't know what they're saying. And so he doesn't understand what's going on. And so that's where we pick up. Acts chapter 22, verse 30. The next day, since he, the he there is the commander that I was telling you about. Since he wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews... He released him and instructed the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to convene. Then he brought Paul down and placed him before them. So he's going, we got to figure this out. So we're just going to have like a hearing on this. So what we're going to do is I'm going to take you out of these chains. I'm going to take you down to the Sanhedrin. So he calls the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem for them to meet. This is kind of like a court where they would all like listen, I guess, to Paul's side. And then they would explain their side. And he's like, we're going to get to the bottom of this. We're just going to take you and have you testify before the Sanhedrin. And let's see what they have to say. So that's, that's what the commander decides to do. Here's how that goes. Chapter 23, verse 1. Paul looked intently at the Sanhedrin and said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience until this day. But the high priest Ananias ordered those who were standing next to him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. You are sitting there judging me according to the law and in violation of the law. Are you ordering me to be struck? And those standing nearby said, do you dare revile God's high priest? I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, replied Paul, for it is written, you must not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now those five verses are kind of like a roller coaster of drama just in those first five verses. He shows up and it's like, okay, let's get started. What do you have to say, Paul? So Paul starts off, he looks like he gets one sentence out. Okay, I haven't done anything wrong before God. And then the person who's supposed to be presiding over this hearing says, hit him in the mouth, right? And he's going, I haven't said anything yet. Like, we're supposed to decide what, what I've done here. And like, you've, it seems like you've decided my guilt before I've got a chance to say anything. How, how are you, Mr. Justice, being just when you're having someone hit me in the mouth? I haven't even said anything yet. So he calls the guy a whitewashed wall. And then apparently everybody else goes, do you not realize you're talking to the high priest? To which Paul goes, no, I didn't know I was talking to the high priest. 
okay? Which is the interest that brings up an interesting question. How did he not know that that's, I mean, he just called someone a whitewashed wall. I didn't even know who he was talking to, right? I, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, replied Paul, for it is written, you must not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So well, first question we need to ask ourselves, how in the world did Paul not know when he was getting on to this person um, that that's who he was rebuking? And I guess my official answer to that is going to be, I don't know, because the passage does not say why. It just says that he did, he did not know. Okay, he said, um, yeah, I did not know. So that's all we know. We know he did not know. Um, I will let you know, there are people speculate, if you read books on this, you'll see this. A really, really common, um, I guess, speculation or thing that people believe about this is that it's very possible that Paul had poor eyesight. Okay, that Paul had a problem with his eyes. He wasn't able to see. There's multiple people in the room. The people that are farther away are probably blurrier. Like he just didn't know. He heard a voice, but he didn't know, like he couldn't see who he was talking to. Um, I think that that's possible. There are other passages in the New Testament that are the reason people believe that. Like there are other passages that seem like, they seem to imply that Paul had a problem with his eyes. So that could be. Um, but it doesn't have to be. It might be that he had perfectly good vision and he did not know that he was talking to the high priest, that the high priest switched out from the last time he was in Jerusalem. This is a different guy than last time. And he doesn't know what the new guy looks like. You can remember, this is 2,000 years ago where you can't check ahead. Like you can't go, oh, let me look at their TikTok or their, you know, whatever, their Instagram and see what they look like. He doesn't know what anybody looks like until he walks in the room and sees the people there. So maybe he didn't know who, what the high priest looked like. Um, maybe, maybe he had bad vision. For whatever reason, he says, I did not know it was the high priest. Now, if, that, if I'm understanding this correctly, I want you to notice how respectful Paul was of authority. In fact, how respectful he was even of unjust authority. Right? The, the high priest had just done something wrong. Hit him before we decide what he's done. Right? That's not just. And yet Paul says, I did not know it was the high priest, for it is written, you must not speak evil of the ruler of your people. He seems to be very respectful, even of unjust authority, and he's quick to apologize. Do you notice that? I mean, goodness gracious, some of us, it takes us like a day to work up an apology, even after we figured out we're wrong. And immediately he's like, I, I didn't know, but this is the Bible verse that says I shouldn't have done it. So if, now, there are some people that think that Paul was being sarcastic here. If you read some of the books on this and the commentaries, they will say, some people think that I did not know was his way of saying, like, how could I have known it was the high priest considering the way he was acting? You know what I mean? How was I supposed to know this is Mr. Justice, right? There's no way I could have known, right, that he was being sarcastic. I don't think he was um, because I don't think he'd quote this verse if that, right after it, right? If, like, if he, if he rebuked the high priest and then was happy he did and decided, I'm going to rebuke him one more time and go, well, you're no high priest, right? How would I have known you are? I don't think he would have quoted the Bible verse that basically says you shouldn't do that. And so I think he's being genuine here. And if that's true, I would say Paul is being a good role model for us, right? Paul's being a good role model for us in this story. I mean, maybe not the blurting out of the whitewashed wall before you even realize who you're talking to. Maybe not that part to emulate, but the respect for authority, even um, the authority that you don't like, and quickness to apologize, that would be something that we ought to apply to our lives in the situations where it's appropriate. Um, but that's not going to be the point of my sermon, so let's keep going. Verse 6. When Paul realized that one part of them, them being the Sanhedrin, one part of them were Sadducees and the other part were Pharisees, he cried out in the Sanhedrin, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am being judged because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees affirm them all. The shouting grew loud, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party got up and argued vehemently, we find nothing evil in this man. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? 
When the dispute became violent, the commander feared that Paul might be torn apart by them and ordered the troops to go down and rescue him from them and bring him into the barracks. So <laughs> Paul at this point is aware of a huge theological disagreement between the people who are, who are hearing his case. Okay? I'm assuming he knew it before he even walked in the room. Okay? He's, he's an insider to all this stuff. So he knows that you, he's got Sadducees and Pharisees there. They're almost like two political parties. I mean, it's more theological than political. But, um, but he's, he knows that the Sadducees and the Pharisees are, are there. He knows what they disagree on. He knows that the Pharisees, which is the way he grew up, that they believe something that is much more consistent with like, what we believe as Christians to this day, which is that we're not, we as humans are not just bodies that just exist in the physical world and then die, and once you die, you stop existing. But rather, there is like an, an immaterial part of you, right? A spiritual part of you that continues to live even after your body is gone. And so that's what the Pharisees believe. They believe there was a spiritual you that kept living even after you died. There was an afterlife. They even believe there was a resurrection that's coming, which is something that Christians believe. In fact, I think that's why Paul makes this point. He's saying, hey, what the Pharisees believe match with what I'm saying. Okay, the Pharisees believe that there was one day coming a resurrection where all of these spirits that continue on to live after the body dies are reunited with bodies and live with God, like that this was something that they believed. And so Paul's saying, yeah, I believe that. Paul believed that. He just, Paul believed Jesus was the first one to resurrect. He was the first of many, that there's a point where Jesus is going to come back and he's going to resurrect a whole bunch of people. And he's saying, that's what I believe, but the Sadducees don't believe that. So basically it's, it's the, it's, I'm a Pharisee. That's the reason I'm being judged here. And the Pharisees are going, well, wait a minute. And then the Sadducees are like, we hate him even more, right? And then they start, that's stupid. And the Pharisees are like, who are you calling stupid? And then they start arguing about it. Paul pits them against each other. I assume it's on purpose. And perhaps at first it looked like a great strategy because it got the attention off of him. And it got them all fighting with each other. Okay, that's fantastic. Except the people began to become violent, just like the passage we looked at yesterday, right? The people become violent again. And Paul, it looks like, almost dies again. I don't exactly know what happened, but if you look at it, it says, when the dispute became violent, the commander feared that Paul might be torn apart by them. I don't even know what that means. I imagine like a Pharisee on one arm and a Sadducee on the other arm, and I don't, I don't know if it really went down like that. But whatever violent thing was happening, the commanders were like, this guy's about to get killed again. And so the, the commander rescues him again, just like he did the day before. Um, okay, so then here's the next verse, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, have courage, for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Um, I assume that this was comforting. I mean, just the way that it's phrased. Well, first of all, you have the Lord showing up to him. That's a big deal. There Paul is. What am I going to do? And Jesus shows up to him and speaks to him and says, it's going to be okay. I want you to have confidence. I want you to not fear. For as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And so the reason I assume this is comforting is Paul at this point may have been wondering, God, are you still there? Do you still care? Like there are times where I was like, I was 100% sure, but now I'm like, things are going bad now. Things keep getting worse. Every single time I go into a room, people are trying to tear me apart, right? They almost killed me, and then I didn't die, and then they almost killed me, and then I didn't die. Are you still involved in my life? Is, is this going the way you want? Like, are you still with me on all of this? I don't know. I don't know how much doubt, I don't know how much worry he was, was going through his mind, but I am saying the Lord showed up and said, have courage. 
you're going to make it through this, right? As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. I think that, well, first of all, the have courage, I just, you can tell the tone, like when Jesus shows up to Paul, he doesn't say like, oh yeah, I can see why, you know, this, I mean, you're, this, went, this went pretty bad this past couple of days, didn't it? Like that was, that was kind of got out of hand. I didn't see that coming. Sorry. Like that's not what God does. He says, no, it's fine. It's going the way it's supposed to. Don't be afraid. You're going to make it to Rome. I think that that's how Paul would have, I think Paul would have assumed the way that the Lord says this is, I'm not going to die in Jerusalem. I'm going to make it to Rome because God's, the Lord appeared to me and said, that's what I must do. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to die here in Jerusalem. I'm going to make it to Rome. So next Bible verse, verse 12. When it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under a curse neither to eat nor to drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who had formed this plot. These men went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have bound ourselves under a solemn curse that we won't eat anything until we've killed Paul. So now you, along with the Sanhedrin, make a request to the commander that he bring him down to you as if you were going to investigate his case more thoroughly. However, before he gets near, we are ready to kill him. But the son of Paul's sister, hearing about their ambush, came and entered the barracks and reported it to Paul. Skipping down to verse 19. Then the commander took him by the hand, the him there being the son of Paul's sister. The commander took him by the hand, led him aside and inquired privately, what is it you have to report to me? The Jews, he said, have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the Sanhedrin tomorrow as though they are going to hold a somewhat more careful inquiry about him. Don't let them persuade you because there are more than 40 of them arranging to ambush him, men who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they kill him. Now they are ready, waiting for a commitment from you. So the commander dismissed the young man and instructed him, don't tell anyone that you have informed me about this. So it looks like what happens in this part of the story is there are over 40 men who are like ready and planning to Jack Ruby the Apostle Paul, okay? Now I don't know how many of you know who Jack Ruby is, Um, but he's a minor historical character in American history. Um, I think the story is very fascinating because I used to live just outside of Dallas and I went to the Grassy Knoll and the School Book Depository and I just think the whole story is very interesting. But if you don't know, um, we had a president named John F. Kennedy and he was assassinated. And the person who was arrested for his assassination was Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was arrested the day it happened. Two days later, they were transferring him from the Dallas police station to the county jail. Apparently, it was known ahead of time that this prisoner transfer was going to happen, that he's going to move from Dallas Police Station to County Jail because um, journalists and photographers and stuff had shown up. Like, this was a pre-planned thing, and so photographers had shown up to chronicle the transfer of Lee Harvey Oswald from police station to County Jail. Uh, In the midst of moving him from one secure location to another, um, this guy named Jack Ruby, I think he was a local person from Dallas, he was a nightclub owner, he showed up with a gun in his coat pocket, I believe it was, and shot Lee Harvey Oswald, um, and he died. Uh, Jack Ruby was then uh, convicted of um, Lee Harvey Oswald's murder. In fact, this was all caught on camera because people were there to like photograph the transfer of Lee Harvey Oswald from one place to another. So people were there and they like literally the murder was photographed. Um, So anyway, he kills the guy. uh, He kills Lee Harvey Oswald. And the the idea behind it was, I'm from, from Jack Ruby's perspective, I'm not going to let the criminal justice system play out. Okay? We're not going to see what, what is going to happen next with this hearing and what he says next and what happens with this and the jury and the attorneys. Like, I'm just going to do vigilante justice. I'm, I'm going to kill him right now. And that's what's happening with these 40 men. They're doing the exact same thing. They are saying, okay, 
Jewish leaders, here's the plan. Let's arrange a transfer from one location to another, okay? I want you to request a transfer from the commander from the barracks to the Sanhedrin, okay? And, and what I want you to do is I want you to say the reason that you're asking for the transfer is so that you can have a more careful inquiry. Go in there and say, hey, commander, we're sorry. We realized things got ahead of hand yesterday. Um, you know, like we're tearing people apart. We shouldn't do that. We're not going to do that anymore. Um, so please, if you would, please transfer him back to us. And this time we're going to be calm and we're going to do a hearing and it's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to be great. You're going to love it. We're going to be real careful this time. Okay. So they said, ask him that, but here's the plan. He's never going to get there. Okay. We're going to stab him along the way as he's moving from one place to the other. That's what they had planned to do. We're not going to let the criminal justice system play out. We're going to kill him ourselves. So that's the plan that happens. And then you get to verse 16. And there are some very interesting things in verse 16. Let's look at it one more time. It says, But the son of Paul's sister, hearing about their ambush, came and entered the barracks and reported it to Paul. Several things are interesting in here. First of all, did you notice? Paul's got a sister. We've been studying this guy for, I don't know, 30-something weeks. There has been no mention of his family. There has been no mention of his family. Suddenly he's got a sister. We're almost done with his life story. And we find out Paul has a sister. She's not been mentioned this whole time. Paul's sister, okay, has a son. So if your sister has a son, that is your what? Nephew. nephew. Very good. Okay. You, you, you knew that much better than Jack Ruby. That's impressive. Okay. So we know, we, we know, we know our, our family names. So, he's, so it's Paul's nephew, the son of his sister, is there. Neither of these two... So, so Paul has a sister. Paul has a nephew. Neither of them have been like, mentioned at any point up until this, until this point. And then after the story is done, they never get mentioned again. Okay, so we don't know anything about them. What is going on here? Don't know. It could be that Paul had a sister who was living in Jerusalem and that his nephew is like a young, young man at this point. And he's still living at home. And it could be that Paul's sister was there and the nephew is living there in Jerusalem and overheard whatever he overheard. Um, it could be that the sister is on Paul's side and wants to protect him. It could be that the sister is on like the Jewish people's side and go, oh, my crazy brother, I hope they, I hope they talk some sense into him or do whatever. Um, it might be the sister doesn't even live in Jerusalem. We don't know. Um, it could be that the sister still lives in Tarsus, which is the town that Paul is from, and that the sister sent her son, Paul's nephew, to Jerusalem for education. Okay? That's what I think happened to Paul. I think Paul grew up in Tarsus and then was sent to Jerusalem for like Jewish education. It could be very well that Paul's sister is still living in their hometown, but that she sent her son, just like Paul, just like they always did in that family. They sent him to, like this is Jerusalem, sort of like his college town. This is where he went for education. Whatever it may be, Paul's nephew is there in Jerusalem at this time. And apparently he has the right relationships or he happens to be standing at the right place at the right time. And so he hears about this plan to kill Paul. So he goes and tells the commander about it, and the commander protects Paul again. Let me read it to you. This is what happens next. Acts 22 verse, or 23, verse 23. He, that's the commander, summoned two of his centurions and said, Get 200 soldiers ready with 70 cavalry and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Also provide mounts so that they can put Paul on them and bring him safely to Felix the governor. So what happens here is the commander arranges a, a, a transport from one secure location to another. He's here in the barracks in Jerusalem. We're going to send him to Caesarea where he can be tried by Felix the governor. And he sends a heavily armed escort. I mean, this seems crazy. 200 soldiers, right? 200 spearmen. Why does he have so much protection for Paul? Because he's heard that the people that are trying to kill him, there's over 40 of them right? You can't just have two bodyguards when there's a group of like 40, 50 guys that are trying to kill, right? 
So he's got 200 soldiers and 200 spearmen, and so this heavily armored escort to get to transfer him from the police station to the county jail, right? So that he can be tried by Felix the governor. So as he sends him off, he wrote a letter of this kind. This is the letter that was sent with the group of people and Paul to Felix. I'm going to read you the letter. Claudius Lysias, okay? So that's the author. So we now know the commander's name. We've just been calling him the commander this whole time. Now we found out his name. Claudius Lysias. Two the most excellent governor, Felix, okay? That's who he's being transferred to, okay? So from Jerusalem to Caesarea, from Claudius Lysias' custody to Governor Felix's custody. Greetings. When this man had been seized by the Jews, and they would have known that Paul was the this man because this letter accompanied Paul, like Paul showed up with this letter. When this man had been seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them, I arrived with my troops and rescued him because I learned that he is a Roman citizen. Wanting to know the charge they were accusing him of, I brought him down before their Sanhedrin. I found out that the accusations were about disputed matters in their law, and that there was no charge that merited death or chains. When I was informed that there was a plot against the man, I sent him to you right away. I also ordered that his accusers, I also ordered his accusers to state their case against him in your presence. That's the end of the letter. So I'm going to keep reading. Therefore, the soldiers took Paul during the night and brought him to Antipatris as they were ordered. The next day they returned to the barracks, allowing the cavalry to go on with him. When these men entered Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. After he read it, that's the governor, he asked what province he was from, the, uh, the second he being Paul. When he, the governor, learned that he, Paul, was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing whenever your accusers get here too. And he ordered that he be kept under guard in Herod's palace. I want you to notice that last sentence. He ordered that he, Paul, be kept under guard in Herod's palace. That's where our story ends for today. Paul has been transferred from Jerusalem to Caesarea, and he is being guarded by the Romans. So as we start drawing this sermon to a close, the first thing I want to point out to you is God is protecting Paul in this story. Do you see it? They want to kill Paul, and, and God has arranged it to where the Roman Empire is guarding him, okay? God is protecting Paul in the story. But I want you to notice, the way that God is protecting Paul in this story is not miraculously. It's through ordinary means. Do you see that? This story, you remember the beginning of the sermon, right? With Exodus and Esther? It seems to me that this story that I'm reading is more like Esther than it is Exodus, Right? The Lord tells Paul, you must testify in Rome, right? You're going to make it to Rome. That part's a little bit more like Exodus because the Lord is directly communicating with Paul. But then after that, the rest of the story, much more like Esther. God, how does God rescue him and protect him and get him to Rome? He doesn't part the sea. He doesn't even smite the would-be assassins. He uses ordinary means like the Roman criminal justice system and a nephew who hears about a plot to protect Paul and to accomplish his will. Because sometimes God works through ordinary means. Now, what does this mean for us? As I looked at this passage and I often ask that question, okay, how does this apply to us? What does this mean for us? We see this story where God through ordinary means has protected his servant, Paul. Now, as we think, how does this apply to my life? Does this mean that God will protect us from all suffering in this life? Is that the application here? Well, of course not. In fact, 
That doesn't even happen in Paul's story, okay? God does not rescue Paul from all danger. Have you noticed as we've been going along? Like he rescues Paul from just enough danger so that Paul can continue doing God's will. And so I was thinking about how does this apply to us? Not just what was said to Paul, but what's said to us. Because I look at the promise that God made to Paul and I want to think about the principle of it, of how it applies to us, but I realize some of this is unique to Paul. So let's look at the promise. Verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Have courage, for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So I'm thinking about the promise. I'm thinking, okay, now what does God say to us? Clearly, what God says to us is not this, right? God is not saying to you, Have courage, because as you've testified about me in Jerusalem, you will testify about me in Rome, right? He's not saying that to you. You're not in Jerusalem. And it's probably God's will that none of you are going to go and testify in Rome, right? This is something he's saying to Paul, not to us. So then I ask the question, okay, well, what does he say to us? Like if God were to say to us, have courage, right? Don't be afraid, right? Don't lose your confidence. Keep going. Like for what reason? What, what would he say to us? If it's not because you're, if, 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 if what God would say to us is not, hey, you're going to make it to Rome, what is it that he says to regular Christians, right? In what ways are we supposed to not fear, and be confident. If God were speaking to us and he were to say, take courage, you are going to make it to blank. What's in the blank? And I I think the answer is heaven. Take courage, you're going to make it to heaven. Or you could say the new heaven and the new earth. Um, that's, that's a different way of saying it. I think that's actually even a better way of saying it. We talked about this the week before Easter. If you want to go back and listen to a whole sermon where I talk about the fact that God has described eternity in such a way that it's like a physical place where we will live in bodies with God forever. But regardless of what you call it or even what you believe about it, eternity with God is the promise that helps us to endure the difficulties of this world. Paul's in a tough spot in Jerusalem. God says, hey, no, no, don't be afraid. You're going to make it to Rome. And then we look at our lives and we go, okay, what what has God promised us? He says, oh, you're in a tough spot right here on earth, but you're going to make it. You're going to make it home. Eternity with God is the promise that helps us to endure the difficulties in this world. And so I wanted to show that to you. This passage is unique to Paul. Let's go ahead and go to a passage that's not written to Paul, a passage that is written to just regular Christians. So we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll end with this. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34. I want to teach you this. Very fascinating passage. The writer here of Hebrews is writing to Christians, Hebrew Christians, not Paul in particular, but just your regular old Christians. And he says this to them. He says, For you sympathized with the prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions. Let me stop right there and let's talk about what's going on here. So these are Christians in the Roman Empire who are dealing with a problem, okay? They are suffering. They've had to deal with the confiscation of their possessions. As best as I understand the context of the book of Hebrews, this is what's going on. The Roman Empire at this point is persecuting Christians for being Christians. So I know in the book of Acts, in our particular story today with Paul, the Roman Empire is actually protecting Paul, okay? That's fantastic. This was written years later. They are not protecting now, okay? Now, at this point, the Roman Empire is persecuting Christians, And so it looks like what's happening here is they are getting their possessions confiscated. So he's writing to them saying, I know things are rough right now. And so the question is, and I think this is really important. This is what we've got to think through. And this is what the writer of Hebrews needs to address. And this is what all these Christians have to think through at the time that this was being written. And it's what Christians nowadays need to think through. 
Why would we follow Jesus if that's going to cause us to get our possessions confiscated? Right? That's what the people who were in, like, we got to think about it. It's from the perspective of the people who received this book, right? Why would you follow Jesus if your possessions are going to get confiscated for it? You know that these people back then in the Roman Empire, they must have been tempted. They must have thought to themselves, you know, I could be not a Christian, just be like a normal person, and they wouldn't be taking my stuff, right? If I would just be a normal person, the Romans wouldn't be taking my stuff. But because I've decided to draw the line and go, no, I worship Jesus, that's why I'm losing my stuff. So the question is, why? Why keep following him if that's what it's causing? If you could, if you could just go normal and make it all go away, why not do that? Why follow Jesus if your possessions are getting confiscated? And let me put the question to us, and let me make it a little more general so that it applies to us, because most of us are not worried about the Roman Empire taking our possessions. So let me phrase it this way. Why would you follow Jesus if it might make your life harder? Have you thought through this before? Why follow Jesus if it might make your life harder? There are times when, especially early on, Jesus comes into your life and changes a bunch of things and you go, whoa, my life is so much better because of Jesus in my life and saved me. Yes, I had that happen to me too. But then also some months went by and some years went by and didn't a lot of you go, oh, there are some parts of this that are harder than they would be. There are times where if I could just go be a normie, like things would be easier. But because I'm following Jesus, things are harder. And so you got to ask yourself the question, well, why would you keep following him if it's going to make your life harder? So here's where I think the answer is. This is what he says. So their life's harder. Now look what he says. You've accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions. Now here's why. How are they able to do that? Why keep following? Here's why. Knowing that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. That's why. Why am I going to keep following Jesus if they're going to take away my stuff? The writer of Hebrews is saying, well, of course you're, you can have joy in the midst of them taking your stuff because you know there's a day coming when you're going to have stuff that no one can take away from you. What's he referring to there? Heaven. Yes, he's referring to heaven there. He has to be. Um, I know the word heaven isn't in the verse, but that's the better and enduring possession. And you can see if you keep reading Hebrews, go into chapter 11, verses like 14, 15, and 16, and you'll see that the writer of Hebrews talks about heaven this way as the enduring permanent thing that you're going to get one day. That's definitely, he's talking about eternity with God here. He's saying that's the way you're able to get through the difficult times right now. And so he gives them an exhortation. So right after he establishes this, hey, you yourselves, hold on, I want to read that. Can you go back one? Okay. You yourselves have a better and enduring possession. So in light of that, what? So now if you give me the next verse, please. So in light of that, don't throw away your confidence. Sounds a whole lot like what Jesus was saying when he said to Paul, have courage, right? Don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward for you need endurance so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised, right? Don't throw away your confidence. You need, what's the thing that they need? You need what? Endurance. I got to keep going. So that after you've done God's will, you may receive what was promised. For yet, in a very little while, the coming one will come and not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. But we are not those who draw back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and obtain life. That's the exhortation he gives. Yes, things are difficult now. Yes, there is an enduring possession to come. So don't lose your confidence. Don't shrink back. In fact, we are the people who don't. We do not draw back. We are the people who have faith and obtain life. 
And so today I wanted to remind you to have confidence in God, to endure, to persevere in following Jesus, even when it's difficult, like Paul did. And I think I can say to you with all confidence, and you will make it to heaven. Things are difficult right now. Why would I follow Jesus? Oh, you keep following Jesus. And I'm telling you, you're going to make it home. He will ultimately take care of everything. That's very comforting that he has told us that. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us to be able to see what you are doing around us. There are times when your works are more obvious than others. There are times where it's easy for us to go, thank you, God, for that. And there are times where some of us go, God, are you there? Do you still care? Are you really looking out for me? Do you really? Are you in this? And I just pray you'd help us not to like, question you that way. I pray you'd help us to be able to know like, sometimes you are working in ordinary ways all around us. And just because we can't see it does not mean that we should lack confidence in you. So I thank you. I thank you for as you walk with us in this life. I thank you that you are walking with us to a particular place that is better and enduring. And I pray that you would help us to have a confidence and I'm not going to draw back. And yes, things are difficult now, but I am going to endure. I'm going to persevere. I pray that you would be the one who perseveres us and preserves us, but that we would do our part in enduring. I pray you'd help us to follow you. help Help us to be the people who go, yeah, I know things aren't the way they're supposed to be. Yes, God's doing something. No, it may not be spectacular right now, but no, he has not left me. I'm going to make it home. And so I pray that you give us that confidence. I pray in the short term and in the long term. Um, the short term, I just mean I'm praying for the people in, uh, that are going to track this week, that as they go through difficult things over these next six days, I pray that you would help them to keep their eyes on the prize and say, this is, it's not really about the thing that's happening today. And I pray you'd help them to not lose their confidence, which has a great reward. And then I pray for more than just this next week of track. I pray for all of us as followers of you for the rest of our lives, that we would be people who do not draw back, that we would continue to follow you and continue to endure. We thank you so much in advance for heaven. Thank you for caring about us. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.